Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Our kidneys perform so many critical functions, it is important to ensure good function throughout our lives. We explore the preservation of kidney health and the treatment of kidney disease. Caring for your kidneys, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight as we continue the 20th season of On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Jill Cruz. We seldom think about our kidneys until something goes wrong. They play a key role in our lives and keeping them healthy is vital. Joining us tonight are Dr. Faison Saeed of Avera Medical Group Nephrology, Sioux Falls, and fellow Prairie Doc, Dr. Deb Johnston of Avera Medical Group Brookings. We're here to answer your questions about anything kidney. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. Those of you who ask questions during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. That winner will be announced at the end of this evening's program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. So welcome, I am so glad to have you both here today. I really appreciate you both coming. Well, thank you so for having us. Here. Yeah. Yes. So Dr. Saeed, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you did your training, um, how long you've been in Sioux Falls? Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in Lahore, uh, one of the metropolitan cities in Pakistan. Did my medical school over there. Uh, then I came to the United States for my internal medicine residency. Um, I did my residency in Griffin Hospital and Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut, uh, near New York. Uh, then I came to Midwest in University of Nebraska Medical Center for my general nephrology fellowship. And then after that, I went through, fell in love with transplant during my general nephrology fellowship, went to University of California, San Francisco for my transplant nephrology fellowship training. Since that time, I've been here in Sioux Falls in the last one year, um, loving it so far. Great place to be here, uh, except for the winters, but you get used to it and that's it, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you, so you've seen both coasts yeah. and, and you chose the Midwest. We're, we're so grateful. Yeah, like I was just saying that I think I decided to be in Midwest in, after I joined Nebraska because it was just, I knew that this was the place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice people, nice, like very uh, mellow lifestyle, which I like, so mm -hmm. it's good. Excellent. And lots of kidneys that need help. Lots of kidneys that need help. I yes. agree. Yes. yes. Well, we're glad to have you here. Yeah. So thanks. First time on the show. We're very excited. Yes. So, well, And you. Dr. Yeah. Johnston needs no introduction. You're known and beloved by all. Uh, well, yeah. known at least. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's, let's get started here. So we've got our first question. A viewer called in and said that they go to the bathroom frequently during the night. Does that say anything about their kidney health? 
Uh, it's more about uh, mostly like it's common in male, and I think large with enlarged prostate, you have more frequency and like of urination at night. So it, that needs to be taken care of. I think that's the main problem over there. The other thing that you can have would be like a urinary tract infection, but obviously like it comes with other signs and symptoms of like fevers and chills. But most of the time it's the prostate health that needs to be taken care of with this. Sometimes the heart too. If you True. have heart failure, sometimes you yeah. will mobilize that fluid at night and mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people with sleep apnea can uh, find that they wake up frequently at night and maybe they're waking up because of their bladder and maybe they're waking True. up because of their sleep apnea and then they're awake and figure, hey, I might as well go to the bathroom. So the bottom line though, if you're having a lot of trouble, once a night is normal. Yeah. Um, very common, but if you're having more than once a night, and especially if this is new, you can you can start with your friendly family doc or your friendly internal medicine doc, your primary care doctor. We'll check things out and get you to our friendly nephrologists yeah, if sure. if yeah. need be. Yeah. So, so what would be some of the signs that uh, people should watch for that would be a sign that hey something's wrong with my kidneys. Is there a lot of things that they notice or is it something more that your doctor's gonna pick up on a routine blood test or? Yeah, so I think the chronic kidney disease, most of the time, you don't have a lot of symptoms, uh, at least definitely not for the like for earlier stages. In the later stages, you might have some symptoms and more kidney patients mostly complain of fatigue uh, because kidney patients have anemia along with it because uh, kidneys are responsible in making sure that your blood levels remain stable. And uh, otherwise, I think there's most of the time it's non-specific. And you do your follow with your primary care physician, you check their your labs, um, creatinine, which is the toxin in the body, which we measure, that's one of the markers for kidney disease. And if it's elevated, that means that there is a, some chronic kidney disease that's going on. And then in the, your urine can actually give you a light of like inside your kidney that we look for proteins or blood in the urine. Um, the other common thing that people notice uh, is swelling in their legs, in the whole body. They feel that they are bloated most of the time. That means that the kidneys are slowly shutting down. They're not getting rid of the fluid, uh, which this should be, and that fluid starts accumulating in the body. So all those things. But again, these mostly present at the later stages of the kidney um, and not in the first term. Uh, just to elaborate, kidney disease is divided into five stages, stage one to stage five, with five being the worst one, stage one being the earliest. So most of the patients that we see in our clinic are mostly around stage three and stage four that we deal with. That tends to be when I, when I see someone kind of drift into that stage three, I'm like, ooh, yeah. I've got someone you need to meet. <laughs> Let me introduce you to my friend here. Yes. So yeah, yeah, I think that it's kind of a very subtle thing that you may not notice. And I know the nephrologists, when I get the notes back from you and your colleagues, they always are saying, get that blood pressure under control. Get that blood pressure. Make sure you're careful about that. You know, make sure you're careful about uh, NSAIDs or you know the, the ibuprofen, the Aleve, how much people are using that. Um, do you want to explain to the viewers why, yeah. why they're so uh, particular about 
about those two topics? Yeah. So I think, uh, like we talked about to the med students about like the blood pressure right now, was that it's the chicken and the egg. If it's just, like the blood pressure is from the kidney disease, or it's the kidney disease is from the blood pressure. But most of the time, your kidneys are responsible for regulating your blood pressure very closely. Uh, high blood pressure tends to damage the kidneys. Normally, we prefer our patients to be between. 120 and 80, the normal blood pressure values. And if it starts going up, obviously we want to control that with some medications. Blood pressure can cause hardening of the blood vessels. And kidneys are like a bag of blood vessels. That's how I normally tell my patients. So obviously like if all the vessels are getting affected, that means that the kidneys are gonna get damaged. And that's what we need to control. Um, Motrin and Relieve NSAIDs, um, I think they are really bad for your kidneys, they are really bad for your heart, for your GI, your stomach, it, they have a lot of side effects. Um, obviously like if our one patient's most common question is like how much they can take if they are in pain, I always tell them we don't want them to be in pain. So if you want that, those medications, you can have that in moderation. I'll say like once or twice a month, but whenever you do, uh, hydrate yourself, do it, take it with food uh, so that like the damage can be minimized as much. But those medications can directly affect the kidneys and they bad. we really have really horrendous stories for patients with NSAIDs ending up on dialysis. All right, well, very, people are very interested today. There's lots of great questions coming in. Uh, a Castlewood viewer wants to know how the drug torsamide works to take water off the kidneys and why it's necessary. And I know people talk about water pills or fluid pills. That's kind of a, a, a really common name that yeah. people kind of use to describe them. Um, that is right up the kidneys alley. Yeah. So do you want so, to talk a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, water pills, mostly we call it looped diuretics. Uh, what that means is basically the tubules through which the kidneys are made of, uh, it acts on them. Uh, the function of that, it actually acts on one of the channels in that uh, one of the tubules of the kidneys. And what it does, it basically it gets rid of some sodium, potassium, do the exchange. This is how the kidneys normally work. It actually blocks those channels. And in doing though, it actually gets rid of volume or swelling, like the extra fluid that you have in your body, and actually tries to retain the good prod like products for the, in the kidney. Um, the side effect of it is that you always lose some potassium with those medications. Um, there are three types of loop diuretics that we normally use, furosemide, torsamide, and biomexabumetanide. Uh, torsamide is the longest acting, or it stays in the system for your, the longest. Furosemide is the most common one. It's the stays in, it's called Lasix because it stays in your system for only six hours. Uh, after that, its effect goes away. But those are the most common ones that we normally use, and their job is to make sure that they get rid of the extra swelling you have in the kidney, with, with the kidney disease. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or heart disease. Okay. Yep. Probably, you know, in our practice, we mm -hmm. see it a lot more using for right. heart disease, uh, people who have heart failure, and, and we need to push a little more of that fluid out mm -hmm. because that heart isn't getting that yeah. fluid through those kidneys so that the kidneys can do their job quite as well. So um, it, it is quite possibly a medicine that's extremely important. It's not a medicine, though. I, I will often have people come into my office and say, oh, I've got this puffy ankle. Can I have a fluid pill? 
Uh, yeah. that's, that's, if that's it's your varicose veins, let's not use those fluid pills. Yes, right. exactly. So, yeah. and, and yes, Lasix, I, I've always had people kind of talk about, you know, oh, I take it and then I'm up all night. And I was like, yeah. when do you take it? Yeah. Like right before bed with all my other pills. I'm like, ooh, no, last six hours, which is always what I remember the acronym for Lasix when I was a med student, whether they did that on purpose or to help <laughs> us remember it, I don't know. But, yeah. you know, so do you recommend people take these fluid pills in the morning when they're up? I mean, I've had people that, you know, if they're driving in from, you know, outside yeah. of, you know, from Brookings down to Sioux Falls, mm -hmm. should they hold their Lasix pills before when they're getting on the interstate? Because I think most of the patients are smart enough and I've seen <laughs> like they, they do that. And I think I would really commend on them that uh, when they go for like long distance travel, they try to take, not to take those medications. But yes, I had some patients like you, you mentioned that they take at the end or like at supper time. Uh, and obviously like then they're just like in trouble because then you have to like get up in the middle of the night to like to urinate. So what I recommend patients to like if they're just day-to-day -day work, take it in the morning. Uh, they can have bathroom breaks like during the work hours, that would be good enough. Uh, and obviously if they don't, then they can hold it and take it like once they come back, but don't take it later than 3 p.m. Um, that's my cutoff. That's what I normally tell them, especially when you do two time dosing or twice a day dosing. Yeah. So you try not to give them like later than 3 or 4 p.m. And that's what we practice in, our, in hospitals too, because we don't want the patients to get discomfort while they're in the hospital as well. Yeah. All right. A viewer asked, are swollen legs an indication of kidney failure or could it be something else? Um, it's basically like a combination of both. It can be an indication for kidney failure. It can be an indication for a heart failure because heart and the kidneys work so synergistically, like so much in harmony that if one organ is not doing well, the other is not going to do well. In medical term, we call it the cardiorenal syndrome, and obviously there are four types of them, uh, different pathologies. So if it can be, a, like I said, you need to evaluate both organs. We sometimes do an ultrasound of the heart to see like, if the heart is functioning well, if somebody has leg swelling. We look for proteins in the urine, uh, if the kidneys are not working well. So these are the major two tests that you normally start with. If you're spilling proteins in the urine, that means that you're not retaining enough water and you're actually like getting rid of the proteins which are not able to hold on to the blood products in the blood vessels. And you start losing blood from the blood vessels in, in the circulation and that can cause swelling around the legs. And we do a heart or an echocardiogram which can tell you if the heart is not pumping blood enough or there's a lot of pressure on the right side of the heart that's causing the fluid to build up in the body. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's amazing how the kidneys just work in concert with everything in the body. It's yep. not just, there's not these individual little things all off on their own, <laughs> kind of being ignored. It really is such the synergistic effect between the heart, the lungs, yep. the kidneys. Yeah. I mean, they're all working together for the same goal of keeping you healthy. Yeah, I, and I think uh, the cardiologists and nephrologists, they work very closely together with each other and we share a lot of mutual patients and like communicate with each other like how much Lasix they want the, the patients to be on and how much would be a good balance. And that's what we normally decide on. But like it's having a patient with cardiorenal syndrome is bread and butter for like cardiologists and nephrologists. Yeah. Excellent. Well, a viewer from Spearfish was on Meloxicam, so that's one of those NSAIDs, mm -hmm. a prescription one, uh, for her arthritis um, 
pain in her knee. After she received a knee replacement, she went off her medication, but her creatinine numbers have still been higher even after stopping it. Is there any way she can fix the creatinine or is the damage done? Um, it depends on like if she started with good kidney function and it's been like less than three months uh, when the creatinine elevation has been there, there's chances that it's gonna recover. But if the creatinine sometimes uh, stabilizes for at least one or a couple of months while being on meloxicam or like the medication, then even if you're taking out, they remain steady. That means that there is some damage. Good thing about the kidneys are they do recover uh, if you nurture them well, if you make sure that you don't insult them, don't give them more medications. Uh, we see it all the time in our hospitals. Uh, in medical terminology, we call acute tubular necrosis. And, and that can be reversible. And so the healthier the kidney they start with, the better the outcomes are. And obviously the earlier you stop the medications, the better the outcomes are. Yeah. That's one thing that I do that often frustrates my, my chronic patients. The ones where I'm perfectly healthy, I've just got this bad knee, I want that meloxicam or whatever. Well, I make you come in every three to six months and I check your kidneys. Um, and that's exactly why, because I would rather they not become your patients. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And we like that. Just yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Right. It, it's, it's a delicate balance. There's a risk and there's a benefit to every medication. And, you know, under the doctor's guidance, we're trying to balance those risks, those yeah. benefits to give you the optimal outcome. So, yeah. you know, sometimes one thing b takes priority or precedence, mm -hmm. and then we have to kind of... Um, see what we need to do to yeah. uh, take care of you. And, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes the kidneys get stunted for a little bit. Sometimes the back has to just deal with the deal pain with for the, a little bit. Yeah. So, Yeah, I think uh, yeah. obviously like we don't want them to be in pain and like other alternatives like uh, prednisone sometimes can be helpful. So. Excellent. But they always come with their own side effects too. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So. Well, Brett Ingelkiss is an Iowa native who battled serious heart issues throughout his childhood. At age 23, he received a heart transplant, which eventually resulted in kidney failure. Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael spoke with Brett via Zoom about his journey. It was the end of December 1999 when Brett Ingelkiss received a donor heart. Um, I had a little bit of rejection at first, and you know that corrected. And then I had a little bit more rejection, and then they corrected that. And then I was actually over-immunosuppressed, and I ended up contracting the leading fungal, viral, and bacterial infections, like the top three killers for transplant recipients in my, in my body all at the same time. And so I had abscesses on my brain, mold growing in my lungs, mold growing in the muscle tissue of my leg. Um, like nocardia, PCP, aspergillus, CMV, like I was the poster child for infectious disease. Unfortunately, the medication necessary to cure those infections, amphotericin, caused Brett's kidneys to fail, resulting in three years of dialysis while waiting for a kidney transplant. The donor, who was a perfect match, was his cousin. It was March, I think, twenty around there of 2005 um, that I had the kidney transplant and what was amazing is so that was in March 28th 
And I went from not being able to go up those four steps to get into the house and wanting just to crash that by the time it was July 28, my wife and I were out in Estes Park, Colorado, whitewater rafting and rock climbing. He said that while on dialysis, he was alive and thankful for that. He wasn't really living. At 45, Brett's now living a fulfilling life with a wife, children, and good career, thanks to his cousin. And you can never say thank you enough. How do you say thank you for somebody who really like laid down so much of their life really for you to be able to live? So are relatives often the best source for a kidney transplant? The next of kin registry was found. Uh, most of the time, yes, they are, but not necessarily 100% the case. Uh, we have a lot of patients who step up, like they're friends, uh, they're not related. So there are actually two types of living donations that you can do. You have living unrelated kidney transplant and living related kidney transplant. Outcomes for living-related kidney transplants are better as compared because of the close uh, match of the genetic makeup uh, as compared to living-unrelated. But you cannot say like which one is better, but maybe living-related a little better. But we still think of them as under the umbrella of living kidney transplant donations. Yeah. Yeah, and kidneys are kind of unique. You can donate those while you're still alive. Your other kidney does just fine. Um, generally, those donors don't end up going on to have any problems with their kidneys. Or I know that some people, oh, I'd love to donate it, but what if I end up on dialysis because I need two kidneys? Have you ever seen that where a donor ended up on dialysis because now they suddenly needed that second kidney? Fortunately, no, good. which is good. Uh, but yes, there have been some cases. Uh, but you can definitely survive with one kidney. You actually you just need two-thirds of your one solid one kidney actually to survive. We, when we evaluate donors, uh, we obviously like tell them the risk factors, which is like 5% more as compared to somebody who, with the, who hasn't donated. Uh, and then uh, obviously like if they, God forbid, end up needing kidney for themselves, uh, they always get a very high priority on the deceased donor list. Uh, we know that children are given priority on the deceased donor list, but like they come right there, like the previous donors. And so far, not in my experience, I haven't. But yes, there are some cases, but very few of them, very few. Because we normally don't evaluate anybody for living donation because we see like if the chances of having a kidney disease is less than 1%. We have to make sure of those those things. If they are more than 1%, we don't even entertain those donors. Okay, so you kind of weed out those yeah. who would be at high mm -hmm. risk for needing some problems right. down the road themselves. Right, yes. Okay, good. Yeah. So what kinds of, of things do you look for in your donors? What kind of diseases, what kind of conditions, family history? What sorts of things, if I'm thinking about donating a kidney, mm -hmm. would you look at to say, 
So yeah, I think uh, it's we look at the family history. Uh, obviously, we look for like their diseases. We screen for hypertension. We screen for diabetes. We screen for proteins in the urine. We screen for albumin in the urine. Uh, we scan them, make sure because there are some genetic diseases in which you have a lot of cysts uh, in your kidney, the polycystic kidney disease, which everybody might have heard. It's an autosomal dominant disease. Fifty percent chances you're gonna get it in the family. So if any of those things, obviously like that's a big no-no, then there are obviously like certain malignancies, uh, solid organ malignancies like breast cancer, like colorectal cancers, like obviously survivals. We know like they, they go into remission and they stay in the remission for a very, very long time. But we still see 1% of those patients do come back with the cancers. We don't entertain those. Uh, melanoma is another cancer that we normally don't screen. So all the big ones that we obviously try to eliminate before we're doing any donor nephrectomies or like uh, taking a kidney from somebody. Okay. So how does one become a kidney donor? I mean, there's the card that, you know, you have on your driver's license, you can check that box, yes. organ donor. So yes. that that's one type of kidney mm -hmm. donation. That's after you've passed away. Right. So no one's going to be calling you up saying, hey, yeah. I saw you checked uh, yes on an organ yeah. donor. We want your kidney. Right. So then there's the other one where you're talking about anonymous donors or living related. Is that a different list or how do you get on that one? Like, is it a registry, like a bone marrow registry? Or? So all you have to do is like, you have to like, at least for like our Avera Center, you just have to give, give us a call. We start with some screening questions. About, like the medications and the diseases I talked to you about. So we talk about those. Uh, if answers are all no, then we start the evaluation, we get the blood work done, the urine testing done, then they come and see us. And then we ask them like some questions about their family histories and pertinent points. Like for example, for females, we ask them about preeclampsia, eclampsia, history of clotting disorders, uh, medications that they are on, all those things, their lifestyle, uh, smoking, uh, other drugs, all those things contribute. So we obviously like try to eliminate all those risk factors before we actually accept them. So all you have to do is just give them a call, then they do some online survey that they have to fill out, and then they come and see us. And if all goes well, they can donate to anybody anywhere in the whole USA, yeah. What a gift. Yeah, and we have been pleasantly surprised, like I was just saying, social media has played a big role in it. Lots of people are motivated to do something good for humanity, which is just amazing. Yes. Yes, because dialysis is definitely very time in, involved for the people who are undergoing mm -hmm. it. So there's two different types. There's hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of explain the difference between the two? And Yeah, so hemodialysis means like blood dialysis. You normally use a AV fistula, like which is a connection between vein, vein and the artery, which we place like uh, in your non-dominant non arm. And then uh, the, the other is the catheter, which goes into your IJ, internal jugular vein, or they can go into your femoral veins, um, and through which we do the blood dialysis. So the machine does the cleaning. You hook up with the machine. You do three hours, four hours in center, three times a week. Or you can do five times a week shorter runs at home. So these are the blood dialysis. The other one is a peritoneal dialysis, totally different concept. It actually, it's a tube that goes into your belly. Uh, it stays between your uh, intestine and your muscular wall of the abdomen. And it's basically 
like changing the oil in a car, you can say it. Like you put the fluid in, it sits in there for like two hours, three hours, get all the junk out, you drain it. This is how you clean the blood. So this is the peritoneal dialysis. Advantage, recently there are lots of studies that have come up. Peritoneal dialysis is a little bit superior. We are encouraging more. The advantages is that uh, patients can do it at home. Um, they just do it, connect them, themselves at night uh, while they're asleep, nine hours. The machine does the cleaning rather and then you're good. Um, and then I think there is some mortality benefit, but there's not a lot between the difference, but obviously both the dialysis modalities have their own side effects and benefits and risk factors. So with the different stages of kidney disease, who is on dialysis? What stage is that? So uh, I start talking to my patients about dialysis when their function is below 25%. Uh, um, normally there is no cutoff like when you're going to start dialysis unless the patient becomes symptomatic. Uh, obviously, when their function is below 10%, you have to start talking more and more. You have to review their labs more frequently every month, every two weeks, just to make sure that their potassium acid levels, urea levels, they remain stable. So we actually look at the patient and their symptoms uh, and then decide. We don't dialyze somebody, start dialysis with somebody whose creatinine is getting elevated, but their acid levels and everything are fine, and they're just walking and talking fine, but they don't have any issues. So it depends on like their symptoms. And then obviously like in the labs, if anything comes normal, you just start right away. So you start the process with the below 25%. You below, once you hit below 20%, you can be on the transplant list, uh, the kidney transplant list. So the transplant evaluation takes a lot of time. And sometimes it takes up to like three or four months for the whole evaluation. So the earlier you start them, the better. I tend to keep my patients who are in stage four of the kidney disease to get evaluation done, and then they can be inactive on the list as long as their function is stable. Okay. So a viewer from Rapid City wants to know which antibiotics are safest to take, and they are in stage two kidney disease. So they want to know like cephalosporins, doxycyclines, are there antibiotics? I, I know as a primary care doctor, mm -hmm. I have to adjust doses sometimes for people who are in those uh, worse stages right. about doses. Sometimes we do a lesser dose or we do them more, um, we kind of space it out longer. Yeah. Instead of doing it three times a day, we'll give them medication twice right. a day. Uh, so, but with stage two, is there any adjustments that people generally need to make or is there something that's safer that you generally not, watch? Not necessarily for stage two, but like somebody with an advanced disease, stage four, you might have to make some more dosage adjustment. Um, and like in, like in everything in medicine, um, everything has its side effects. So every antibiotic would have its own specific side effect. Some would be related to, because liver and kidney are the only two organs which actually get rid of those, your medications that you take in. So obviously kidneys take a hit and if your function is not well then you would have side effects of those antibiotics. But most of them they are pretty safe like if they're talking about cephalosporine, doxycycline, they are pretty uh, safe to take in. Um, the one that normally is notorious that can we don't want to patients with chronic kidney disease at the Bactrim that we try not to keep give them with somebody with kidney disease because obviously it can cause high potassium and some elevation in creatinine. All right. We also are careful using some antibiotics, um, particularly for bladder infections. There's an antibiotic out there called mm -hmm. nitrofurantoin, mm -hmm. which it's not that it is harmful to the kidneys, but 
the kidneys are required to process it. Right. And if your kidneys aren't working, that antibiotic's not going to do much. Yeah. Nope. That is true. Well, a quick question before we go to our next uh, roll in here. A viewer from Sioux Falls asks, is there a maximum age at which a healthy person can't be a living related donor? So like a 77 year old gentleman, no health issues, no medications, are they too old or would you say? Our cutoff is 70. Okay. 70 years of age, we don't entertain um, donors after that because I think then they definitely have a high risk of developing kidney disease themselves. But there are other centers which have a little lesser cutoff, like 65, and San Francisco was like even less. So uh, yeah, the cutoff is 70 from okay. that. And then again, you have to be realistic uh, about certain donations as well, yeah. But kidney's already 70 years old. Right, yeah. So if you're How much benefit it's going to be. If yeah. you're a 20-year-old yeah. person, that kidney may not have Agreed. as yes. much time. But if you're a 75-year-old person, yeah. And it may yeah. be a great match. It may be a great match. We'll yes. See. Yeah. All right. If you ever needed to be contacted in the event of an emergency, would first responders know how to reach you? If you're uncertain, you'll want to watch this segment from Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt. The Next of Kin Registry was founded by Mark Cerny in 2004 as a free resource for people to register in their emergency contact information. NOKR serves as a single point of contact database so first responder agencies can easily notify family or friends in the event of an incident or natural disaster. Started it out of a personal tragedy in my family where I lost somebody. Uh, I was working for the coroner's office in San Diego, came back from a quick vacation in, in Kauai with my wife and uh, come to find out the, uh, my family member had passed away and, and they said they had no way to contact me. NOKR is available in over 87 countries with the help of over 3,800 volunteers. It can be used for first responders to find your family or the other way around. In the event after a disaster, if you've got a loved one that's missing in an event like we're seeing now with Hurricane Ida or the fires in Northern California or what have you, or any other type, it could be a terrorist event somewhere in London, you could register your family as a disaster victim in those particular events. So you, your information is archived and it can be accessed by a first responder agency looking to find your family members. Cerny says over 400 million people have used the registry since it was founded. The information is secret and only accessible by you and credible agencies in an emergency. You know, it's not a matter of if you're going to have a, a disaster or if you're going to have an emergency. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. So it's incumbent upon individuals to be proactive. Cerny says daily registrations are now around 1,500 to 2,500 a day. When you started this, did you ever uh, think it would grow to be, be this big? Absolutely not. I tried to solve a simple problem up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, that's where I started the resource through a, a local fire department up there called Whatcom County Fire District 3. Uh, it grew really fast. Governor Schwarzenegger you know, reached out to the organization through, through his office and said, we're going to put it on the front page of the California State website. And then uh, a bombing happened in London. We were part of that. Uh, a tsunami happened in, in Banda Aceh. I think it was over 220,000 people. We were to stand up for that. And then Larry King called us uh, when Hurricane Katrina started and said, we want to put you on the show and we want to highlight your resource. Um, you know, it's just amazing, you know, the, the way this thing's continued to grow on its own. It's need-based.
right. Well, have either of you heard of the National Next to Kin Registry uh, prior to to the? Actually, I just heard about it. Yeah. This was new for me too. Yeah. So this is a fabulous. Yeah. Yes, I did not know about it until a Facebook glitch uh, made me friends with Mark Cerny. <laughs> so oh, nice. I had a friend request from him, like, "Who are you? And what do you want?" <laughs> and I looked into this, and I was like, "Well, this is fascinating. I need to spread the word about this." I I think it's really important, you know, yeah. especially with all these natural disasters, um, you know, with Hurricane Ida. Yeah. How would you get? How would my family know if I were yeah. safe, or how would someone get a hold of me, you know, yeah, if natural, they didn't know? Yeah, natural calamities is like an everyday event now. Yeah, yeah. which is Absolutely. sad. Yeah. So, all right. Well, several very interesting questions here. A viewer from White Lake is wondering why do they only take the right kidney from the donor? <laughs> Uh, it's mostly the anatomy. Uh, the renal artery, renal vein are longer as compared to the, on the left side. So surgeons prefer that and I think it would be a good way to like donate as well. Somebody, when we transplant the kidney, we make sure that the anastomosis is okay. So that's primarily the reason. All right. And when they put the kidney in mm -hmm. to the recipient, they don't take the old ones out. They leave them in place and the new one goes in the abdomen, correct? Yep, yep, the front, yes. All right. And then kind of their career in football and rugby <laughs> kind of goes out the window, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. The, only, the only exception is like if you have really large kidneys uh, with polycystic kidney okay. disease, at that time we the prefer to take those kidneys out because we have sometimes you need them for space okay. when you give, transplant the kidney. So those are the few occasions, but otherwise, we let them sit. All right, because yeah. they're not causing any harm. They're not causing Let's any not harm. cause any other areas to get infected. Well, it can be a source of nidus for infection okay. down the road, and sometimes on worse complications, you can have uh, some small growth or renal cell carcinoma from the previous kidneys. And those are the indications we just remove those kidneys. But again, it's an extensive operation. We routinely don't do it. We do it by case to case basis on some some certain indications, which I think I mentioned, these are the ones. Excellent. And speaking still about donation, a viewer from Mobridge wonders, uh, if they're on a blood thinner, can they still be a, a donor? Yes, they can be, but depends on like what, why they are on the blood thinner to begin with, so we need to investigate that. If it's like any vulgar issues, if they had a history of clots, mm -hmm. obviously we would have to figure out their risk factors before we actually putting them for surgery. Obviously, if they have high risk factors, then we wouldn't. And obviously, during, after the surgery, you don't start the blood thinners. You have to stop the blood thinners and push them with IV blood thinners like heparin during the surgery. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that we entertain those organs, but they, uh, the donors, I, but if they do and they're healthy, otherwise, we can definitely make an exception on that too. All right. So viewer says, I'm from a small town and we don't have any specialists for kidneys. We're in Brookings. We're a medium-sized town. We don't have any specialists <laughs> for kidneys. Though. So I, I commiserate. We, we have them that come in. Yeah. We have them that come they in, but they, they don't, don't live, live here. Yes. Exactly. How does my local doctor determine if I need a specialist? Local doctor. Local mm. doctor. Uh, but basically by your blood work. Um, I, particularly with kidneys, that's actually a fairly straightforward question. What is your creatinine? What has your creatinine been? Is it increasing? Is it stable? Do you have protein in your urine? And occasionally there's other situations, uh, blood in the urine or other kinds of things that I might want to involve my nephrologist colleague with. But usually it's a matter of, of watching the blood work. It's the rare patient that actually needs to get to our nephrology specialists. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it is something important for us to watch. And then how do you get in contact with a specialist? How do you oh, get a patient sent to That's easy. <laughs> that's the easy part, it, isn't it? It happens by magic. I put in the order and the, the staff does it. Wow. But I also have the advantage of being able to send messages to pick up my phone and, and call my nephrology specialist. And we appreciate that a lot. Yes. yes. So yes. We, yes. Can, yes. we can facilitate and make sure that any, yes. any special testing is accomplished Needed, before yes. they're seen so that they have that information to work with. Yep, and I have my favorite nephrologist cell phone numbers. <laughs> yes, we have we have cell phone so numbers. A lot of times if, if you get that with that um, camaraderie between specialists and primary yeah. care, we all want the same thing. We want our patients to do well, well and yes. we want them in the best hands possible. So True. Um, I would say if, if Patients want to know who to go to. Ask. I always say, you. ask your primary care doctor. Who would you send your family to if you yes. had a favorite nephrologist or a favorite cardiologist, or or if you needed this, who would you ask? Because yeah. or ask the nurses. They know too. They know too. Yeah. They know too. All right. A viewer from Sioux Falls is wondering: Is there a negative impact from the COVID vaccine for the kidneys? No, absolutely not. Not thing that we came across. Uh, obviously, like. There are certain risk factors that we're not aware of, but like, no. Now, COVID, on the other hand, yes. can be very hard on the kidneys. Absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, it can actually cause, we have found, we have done a lot of biopsies on patients with COVID who have kidney disease. And in medical terminology, we call it the collapsing glomerulonephritis, which mm -hmm. was previously associated with HIV infection. And that actually like, gives you a very, very bad prognosis for your kidney. Uh, so we, the biopsies have been very similar to those to that disease, and that's why it's important to like to get the vaccination. Yeah. And, and and that is yet another reason why we can say, you know, what we were seeing last year was not influenza by another name. It was a different disease. Right. Yeah. COVID is a different disease from influenza. So everybody, get your shot. Definitely. True. Yep. Excellent. Well, a viewer from Sioux Falls asks if the high-protein diets are hard on the kidneys compared to regular protein. Are those kidneys having to filter all that protein out? We talk about protein in the urine, so yeah. if you get too much, is that going to damage, clog them up? Yeah, uh, very common and a very great question. Uh, so high-protein diet can put a burden on the kidneys because obviously the kidneys' job is to make sure that they, they uh, filter out the proteins. They don't like get them excreted in the urine. Uh, I think everybody knows what a good diet is. Um, it's you know it's whole grain, more uh, cereal, like fresh fruit, vegetables, all those things. Uh, fish is better than red meat. Uh, but obviously, like you have a taste palate for some meat, then you don't want to like deprive yourself. So I think everything you do in balance would be good. Uh, I wouldn't recommend anybody to like have a, like a steak daily. But like if they are taking it like five days a week. Maybe they can cut down to like two days a week, three days, or not more than that, and, and switch to white meat. Yeah. Your your kidney patients, mm -hmm. I'm sure you often will tell them they need to watch their protein intake, right. particularly yeah. those end stage or later stage kidney patients. Now, how about uh, plant based proteins? Are they as hard on your kidneys as animal based proteins? Um, I myself is not like an organic <laughs> hog, but uh, no, not that, not as hard. 
not as hard, yes. Uh, but there are always like some herbal products that can be damaging to the kidneys. Correct. Yes, yeah. Yep. So, you know, then just, we need to be careful. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it can't hurt you. Exactly. So be, yes. Be very careful with those uh, supplements and those yeah. herbal products. Yeah. All right. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to get to as many questions as possible. So, rapid fire questions here. Mm -hmm. A viewer from Sioux Falls asks, for patients with high blood pressure and kidney disease who can't take those NSAIDs, what about mar medical marijuana as a possible alternative? Would that pose any risk to the kidneys or? Um, so it's, it's a, like a, it's a hard debate, but medical marijuana has been legalized in like certain states, especially where I did my training. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody over there was using it. Uh, we actually did a lot of donations, like living donors evaluated them. We did their like remove their kidneys or, like for the donation purpose. They did well. Um, so so far, no. But obviously, like if somebody who is gonna get a transplant, and if somebody who wants to donate, we um, want them to be off the marijuana for six weeks, and post transplant as well, post donation or post transplant as well, before they can be reintroduced. All right, we've got a question from another coffee lover like you, Dr. Johnston. <laughs> Man from Gary ex occasionally experiences some low back aches after drinking coffee. He's able to cure it by drinking lots of water. Is that a sign of a kidney problem, or is it something that, that uh, kidney uh, happens to the kidneys from the coffee? Do you know? Um, I think if you're having back pain, um, <coughs> you should always eliminate the cause of like kidney stones. That's one thing that you need to watch out for. Uh, so what I would recommend is hydration and then like talk to your primary care physician and at least get an ultrasound of your kidneys uh, just to make sure that you're not harboring any stones right. because stones can present like that. Well that goes into the next question. A viewer asks about kidney stones. Can donating plasma cause you to develop kidney stones? Uh, not that I've heard of, no. <clears throat> okay, well that's, that's easy. Yeah. But dehydration can. But dehydration, dehydration can. definitely can. Yes. Yes. So. Any last minute do's and don'ts for kidney health? Uh, I think just like um, keep yourself hydrated, try to avoid pain medications, talk to your regular doctors. Uh, if you have any symptoms, which like, again, it's like non-specific symptoms, uh, just ask them, get at least an ultrasound imaging done if you have any pains. Control your blood pressure, that's the key. Uh, diabetes controls your sugars, uh, that's the key because we have at least, 50, for our CKD population, 50% are diabetic, or at least more than 50%. So controlling sugars is the key, controlling blood pressure is the key. My last words, please understand when I make you come in for labs, I am doing it because I don't want you to meet this yes. very kind gentleman. <laughs> yes. so. Yeah. All right. So a viewer from Huron asks, I am in stage four kidney disease and diabetic. Also had my parathyroid removed as a tr in a treatment attempt. I try to maintain a healthy diet. I'm on insulin. Is there anything else I can do to help myself get better and avoid going on dialysis? Uh, unfortunately, if you are on CKD stage four, uh, then I think that means that there is scarring in the kidney. And once there is scarring, there is not much reversal. What we can do is we can stabilize it, and that's what I tell patients, that if we can maintain your hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of your glycemic index or how much sugar you are every three months that you check, if it's like less than at least eight if you're type two or it's less than seven if you're type one, then I think you have a good chance of at least stabilizing the kidney function. So 
monitoring blood pressure, monitoring glucose again would be the way to go. And again, if you can exercise, improve your diet, uh, that goes a long way. It's easier said, I know easier said than done, but it definitely has a good effect. We have lots of studies to support that. Excellent. So quick last uh, wrap up, final, the stages of kidney disease from one to five, uh, how are they defined? So stage one, stage five, we normally divide it, uh, stage them according to two blood tests and one urine test. So the blood test we normally is the serum creatinine, which is a toxin, normal value. It depends on your muscle mass. It can be from 0.9 to 1, and 0.9 to 1.1, depending on somebody like bulky and like had a lot of muscle mass. Uh, the higher the value of it is, the worse your kidney disease is. Uh, then the other test in the blood we call the GFR, or glomerulus filtration rate, which is the amount of blood flowing into the kidney per minute. Uh, the higher the value of that is, that's considered a good kidney function. So as it starts decreasing more, then you start dividing into stages. So normally I tell them 15, 30, 45, 60. That's the cutoff. 1 to 15, if you have GFR, you're stage 5. 15 to 30, you're stage 4. 30, 45, stage 3, and anything above stage 2. Excellent. Yeah. So there, there's just kind of this continuum. It's not a you have it yeah. or you don't. It's somewhere. Yeah, in it's this, a gradual. Yeah, it's a gradual change. And if you can catch it early, the you better. can stop it. it. And I, I think yep. there are new markers coming up. But in the urine, we check for proteins and blood. And if you have any of those, that means that you have some kidney damage going on. And then you, the thing is to do a kidney biopsy right. to see. Excellent. Perfect. Well, the winner of our drawing tonight is Jill Van Asteline from Rapid City. Apologize if I missed your name there. Thank you, Jill. Love your first name. For asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show, a gift will be sent to you. We'll be back to wrap up right after this. Gets called and said, would you be on my show uh, as a guest? And what are you going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about issues that people need to know about. Yeah, this is part of what I'd like to do. The kidneys may be called the Rodney Dangerfield of the body, as they often don't get no respect. The National Kidney Foundation estimates that one in three adult Americans are at risk for kidney disease. Yet, these organs are mostly ignored unless they develop stones or stop working. When healthy, kidneys work continuously at their main job of filtering blood to remove unwanted products and help produce urine. Kidneys clean approximately 200 liters of blood each day and remove up to two liters of toxins, waste, and water in the process. Perhaps less well known is the fact that kidneys are essential for many other functions in the body, including managing blood pressure and preventing anemia. Kidneys release the hormone renin, which is part of the complex renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS, instrumental in helping regulate blood pressure. RAS regulates sodium and potassium absorption in the kidneys and balances fluid and electrolyte levels in the body, all of which has a direct impact on blood pressure. 
When treating patients whose blood pressure does not respond to medications, heart doctors may examine RAS function. They may also order an ultrasound of the kidneys. Sometimes this reveals a narrowing of an artery going into the kidneys, which may be responsible for treatment-resistant high blood pressure. Kidneys also secrete a hormone called erythropoietin, which acts on the bone marrow to help produce red blood cells. Without this hormone, people may develop anemia. Vitamin D is converted to its active form by the kidneys, allowing the body to use the vitamin to its advantage. Thanks to the kidneys, vitamin D helps balance calcium and phosphorus absorbed from foods we eat. Without enough calcium, people can develop weakening of the bones and muscles. Kidneys complete these and many other functions so efficiently that a healthy person can donate one and the remaining kidney will do the work of two. They work hard to help us, so let's do our fair share to help them. If you have diabetes, work to control it as best you can because high blood sugars can damage your kidneys. And one thing all of us can do for our kidneys is to stay hydrated. There is no doubt that kidneys deserve more respect. Talk to your doctor about blood tests and urine tests to check your kidneys' health and functionality. Kidneys, let's show them some respect. A big thank you to our guests, Faison and Deb, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about our kidneys and their health. We invite you to tell us how this program has made a difference in your life. So please email or mail your story to Box 752 Brookings. To see or hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look at Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for this podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for inviting us into your home as we celebrate the 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Traumatic brain injury may occur as a result of a severe sports injury, a car accident, or just a fall in our homes. Learn about coping with traumatic brain injury and advancements in that field. Traumatic brain injury, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. We all want our friends, neighbors, and fellow South Dakotans to have the ability to make appropriate decisions about their health care. To do so, they need access to information from reliable sources, like our Prairie Docs and their guests. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of Prairie Doc programs, which are so helpful and important for all of us especially for those who choose to live in more rural communities in South Dakota and neighboring states. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons and beyond. We can do it with your help. Please consider a personal or corporate gift. Go to prairiedoc.org and click on the donate button today. Thank you.
Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications. <laughs>